Hello, welcome to the radio thing. It's Deanie, Garethy, Shawnee talking about 2017 top 10 films. Hello. Hello. Christmassy New Year special. Yes. Um, I'm actually here. Gareth, yeah. our US correspondent, is actually here in the flesh. Yeah, we can Ooh. see him. He's not, he's not on Skype. We can see his flesh. Um, he's naked. <laughs> uh, we're all naked, in fact. Yeah. Uh, and we're about to run down our top ten films of 2017. It's been very exciting. Hasn't I, it? Yeah. I was quite surprised. I, like, lost faith in cinema a couple of years ago. I don't know why. I just started watching loads of trash. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, I, couldn't, I couldn't handle it. But this year has been pretty... Um, it's been a good year. Yeah. It's, it's been a. I mean, last year I seem to remember struggling to get a top ten together that I was like really excited about to the point where even like Rogue One made it in. <laughs> <laughs> like I did like Rogue One, but yeah. it wasn't. You know, if, if Rogue One had come out this year, based on all these films, it would never make the top ten. Mm-hmm. I've got a top. In all, in all honesty, I've got a top 15 that I really like. I'm not going to mm-hmm. say it's 15. Yeah. We, we're going to keep it to our top 10, aren't we? But mm. it's been a strong year. It's been so many good films. It's been actually like a battle, a struggle to kind of figure out what you want to be in the top 10. Yeah. Because there's, there's, been, there's been too many good films. Yeah. No, I mean, not, not that it's a bad thing. but Yeah, no, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's really exciting, actually. It's been a good year to be a seniest. Yeah, a cinephile. A oh. cinephile. A seniest. Is it a seniest? It can be both, I think. A seniest. seniest yes, we're seniors and cinephiles. To, to, uh, to um, smoothen the, um, the show, I brought some snacks from oh. the US. Oh, lovely. Yes. So I brought six different American snacks. Okay. Whoa. And I'm not proposing that we eat all of them today. Mm-hmm. What I'm suggesting is mm-hmm. that we... Maybe pick two. Okay, so look what we've got. We've got uh, number one is um, a baby Ruth. Whoa, baby Ruth, baby Ruth. I, uh, from the Goonies. From the Goonies. Doesn't is Sluff that, like them? Yes. It's actually from the Goonies. Well, we're definitely no. going to have one of those. We've got a uh, mounds. <laughs> mounds. Chocolate bar. It's a dark chocolate and coconut bar. Okay. They're much more exciting than um, UK chocolate bars. They we've seem got, a bit more bizarre. We will start talking about films soon, I promise, listeners. So we've got two Hershey's, one star. We've got Hershey's Gold, uh-huh. Caramelised Cream, Peanuts and Pretzels. Okay. Ugh. And uh, the second Hershey's chocolate bar is a Mr. Good Bar, which mm-hmm. is a milk chocolate with peanuts, uh-huh. which is a very similar size, mm. dimensions, <laughs> to the aforementioned okay. Hershey's Gold. And we've got... Um, Tootsie Roll. Tootsie Roll. It's nothing to do with the Dustin Hoffman movie from the 70s. Okay. Wow, that's pretty good. Is this what Sloth eats? I'm going to withhold. Oh, you don't want any? No, mm. I've had too much okay. sugar. Right. Um, so, uh, I think what we should do... So, I don't know your top tens in full, but we've been having some general conversations. <laughs> I would suggest that... Uh, the Last Jedi is not in any of our top tens. However, Mm-mm. it'd be crazy if we don't at least talk about it, right? Uh-huh. Yes, that would be crazy. So, uh, who wants to start? I well, could start. You start, Gareth. I just want to before you start. <laughs> when it when it finished in the cinema, 
I really enjoyed it and I had a big smile on my face. Okay. Then afterwards, when I started thinking about it and looking into it, I started to hate it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's what I want to say. <laughs> okay. well, I've made some bullet points. <laughs> wow. I spit them out okay. fast. Um, so I thought the Last Jedi was a mess from mm-hmm. start to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked a few things like the Ray Kylo stuff, um, the showdown with the Red Samurai, and several other things. But I disliked more. Um, Good. For, from the outset, even after the fifteen minutes of CGI spaceship loudness, um, the humour was way off. It was a very cringy uh, yeah, humour thing. Initial. Uh, these we'll, we'll dance around spoilers, but this is something that happens very early on, and it's a fake prank call where he's talking to. You know, the general guy... What's his name? I don't know what his name Hux. is. Hux. Hux. And um, Poe Dameron say, trying to keep him on the line, but he's pretending he's doing a prank phone call. Mm. And it's really cringe. It was an absolute clanger. It feels like Star Wars is... Well, I guess it's for, for a start, it's Disney, you see. And they're aiming it at kids. So it feels like it's becoming like more of a cartoon than like a serious kind of war... Jedi spiritual dark side light side battle mm-hmm. what do you yeah. mean they're not sure the dark side but do you not accept no. I think that if it, I don't think that's massively a problem I think the problem is it it just goes off on these huge pointless tangents and has some serious stinky moments and it's tonally as you say in, it's a mess tonally mm-hmm. and so it's it's not I don't mind I don't mind if they take if they decide they want to make it more kid friendly cool they decide they want to make it really dark fine but it's doing that well in either way is is the point mm-hmm. I'm not I don't have a big honestly like we I know we talk a lot about Star Wars I love the original trilogy mm-hmm. but I'm not like in the cinema like, oh my god they totally <laughs> ruined Luke it's not what I thought and, and he would never do that and what are they doing to me why has Ryan Johnson ruined my life I've got a life. I actually don't really care. I just want to watch a movie that makes sense. And it, they're just whole big bits that just don't make sense. But I want to watch it again. Did you think that Luke Skywalker at the end seemed to look like Tyrion Lannister from Game of Thrones? Did you make the connection? No. Is that something you noticed? <laughs> they looked really similar? No. But okay. I, get, well, I, hear you. I, can, I can see the comparison. Look yeah. for it next time. Um, yeah I've got one thing that for me there's loads of little things that I could mention but the I mean so the character of Snoke is gone yes the character of Hux is the like comedic punch bag Mm -hmm. so these are the representatives of the empire and the evil and I mean it doesn't really work anymore but the I actually like the character of Kylo Ren more. So he's he's supposed to be the baddie. Yes. Um, he has more depth yeah. than anyone on yes. the side of the resistance. True. Um, which I, he's got a like, kind of dark torment going on. And he's unpredictable. You don't quite understand his motives. Yeah. Well, I like that. Yes. Um, and I enjoyed Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill a lot in the movie. Yeah. Yes. But because of the complete, yeah, a mess of a... Tonal inconsistencies it just couldn't make the top 10 yeah I thought Mark Hamill's uh, performance is uh, really good yeah Stunning. I did too it really you know you felt like he was Luke Skywalker yeah 
it's where true. compared to like Han Solo, mm. who's just terrible. Like mm. Harrison Ford's become a really bad actor. He is mm. not a good actor anymore. Well, he's just lazy, isn't he? He just turns up and he's Harrison Ford wearing a, a grey t-shirt and <coughs> trousers looks like he's still in his pajamas and Blade Runner 2049 <laughs> we're going to end up getting to that aren't we <coughs> should we draw a line under that should we draw a line under The Last Jedi should we draw a red salty line in, underneath it I mean we could talk for hours but uh, yeah mm-hmm. that's not. it's not in the top 10 so yeah, they, make the cut. they don't deserve our words no. exactly it was not refined enough Oh, oh, should we also just do a quick caveat that all of these movies are released in UK cinemas in 2017? Because there's some that I've seen on lists that are on IMDb as 2016, but they, that might be when they first were shown at film festivals that were completed. Mm-hmm. But the, our list is based on films that you could have seen in the cinema this year. Uh, do you want to start with your number 10, Shawnee? My number 10, wow. Okay. Um, so my number 10... So basically this year I hadn't really watched many movies and I kind of watched a load of them quite quickly. Uh, but I did a lot of research from the help of both you two, sent me lots of lists from different critics. Um, but basically it, this film was originally my number one before I'd watched a lot of other films, but it's Endless Poetry by uh, Jodorowsky. Alexandra Jodorowsky. Uh, mostly I picked it just because it's very got some surrealist imagery in it it kind of like when you're watching it it feels a bit jumbled like doesn't really make much sense but it kind of it ends up making sense because okay. it's what is it so loosely s- about because I haven't seen it's it it's basically about um, his life okay yeah growing up biographical yeah okay before he's become a, a filmmaker I just kind of I'm a sucker for <laughs> anything that's surreal and really visually quite weird or cool. unusual in films it's definitely very arty farty okay. <laughs> and very um, you know it had the air the like an air of kind of you know something like Salvador Dali going on in it you know that proper kind of like passionate mm. artist sort of mm. thing going on there's lots of you know conversations about like, passion Okay. Art and poetry, and yeah, it had some really uh, incredible big scenes because I know Jodorowsky is very much into you know doing stuff you know real, mm. even even if it seems completely impossible, he wants to do it. Yeah. There and then, like with you know minimal practical kind of special camera, effects. Mean, yeah. yeah, practical. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that <clears throat> that's why I found quite visually stunning. There's also big scenes of lots of people okay. dressed up and things and yeah there's cool. lots of ridiculous stuff going on <laughs> we've got to get I've got to get around to it because obviously Holy Mountain is one of my all time favourite movies mm-hmm. which you made in the 70s with a million pounds from the Beatles I think we've talked about this before but <laughs> yeah. George Harrison was famously not in it because he refused to remove a shot of a like a African woman washing his bum hole <laughs> Gareth what's your number 10 my number 10 is Christine uh, Ooh, interesting. Uh, which is a uh, biographical drama about the, a journalist called Christine Chubbuck. Okay. Um, a television reporter working in Sarasota, Florida in the 1970s, battling relationship, health, and professional problems, which culminates in her suicide on live TV, the first ever during a live broadcast. Quite, quite disturbing. 
Yeah, <coughs> and uh, I guess I liked it because I, I thought uh, Rebecca Hall's performance as Christine Chubbuck was really amazing, and I just felt for this woman, and I thought it was a really affecting movie, and I enjoyed it, and that's my number 10. Strong film. Okay, I'm going to come in on my number 10, and my number 10 is The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Directed by Yargos Lantemos. Good name. Now, I absolutely loved his first film, Dogtooth. Uh, Dogtooth is about a family in this house and uh, the dad doesn't let the children out and they create their own weird little societal rules within the house and it all gets very strange and messed up. And uh, what he's interested in as a filmmaker is to... The way that people talk and interact with each other is almost like strangely robotic and just almost like no emotion is is attached to it. And he what he does by doing that is but he teases out this incredible humour in the mundane. Like for so for, I mean, the killing of a sacred deer is about a charismatic surgeon who's forced to make an unthinkable sacrifice after his life starts to fall apart when the behaviour of a teenage boy he has taken under his wing turns sinister but it opens with this like amazing wide tracking shot down a corridor where uh, Colin Farrell mm-hmm. Colin Farrell is discussing with his uh, surgeon friend like the price of this watch that they've bought mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're just talking about this watch and the way they're talking about it it's just so strange and this 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 atmosphere of strangeness that just builds and builds and builds throughout the film because they're just all just talking in this like bizarre robotic way mm-hmm. accompanied by these incredible wide visuals of this hospital and of people's faces and and it becomes again it becomes more and more surreal and dark and twisted mm-hmm. and almost supernatural um, and I think that all of the performances were wonderful the cinematography is amazing I liked a lot of the I just like what he's doing I like what he's doing as a filmmaker mm-hmm. um, that he's just really trying to create his own thing mm-hmm. it's very him as a filmmaker and that's why I, I admired and I thought it just looked beautiful oh. and well, so uh, I put Lobster on my list last year that's him isn't it same filmmaker so he's got he's developed a style he's got his own style yeah. I haven't seen Dog Teeth but for me this one Killing the Sacred Deer is a bit more sharp and succinct than the lobster I found the lobster a little bit meandering there's that whole second act second half where they go to the woods it loses steam mm-hmm. I didn't for me anyway this gripped me and didn't let go right up until the very end mm-hmm. I and thought I, the, what's the young guy the actor the, uh, I thought his performance was great so number nine I chose a film called The or- Ornithologist so I just I saw the trailer for it and I was just instantly hooked I just I need to watch this film uh, it's definitely got a very um, is it Andre Tarkovsky uh huh it's got um, a kind of feel of his films in it like lots of long nature scenes of like you know basically just nature lots of wind and stuff and okay similar to something you'd see in his kind of uh, Andre Tarkovsky's like stalker or something because you'll see it's set in nature um, and I didn't realise until afterwards, but it's got a kind of like Christian theme going on. What's it about? It's about um, well, okay, so this this guy's an ornithologist. Yeah. So I don't particularly know what that is, but it's something to do with studying 
nature and recording. He's doing lots of bird watching and stuff. Okay. So he's going out and he's like recording the how many animals were active present that year or okay. compared to the year before. So, so he's cataloging them. Yeah. So he's okay. out there. I guess I don't want to. Is say. it a feature film? It's not a documentary. No, it's not a documentary. No. Okay. Okay. Uh, blah blah blah. Let's see what if directed. It's, so it's directed by a guy called Joe, Joe Pedro Gallo. Rodriguez. There you go. Um, so what's the kind of heart of the drama? What 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 kind of? Well, again, it's a surrealist film. Okay. Um, oh God, was it Saint Anthony? So it's set in Portugal. Okay. So he's in Portugal, and uh, you can't really do it with spoilers, but. He basically he ends up having an accident. Uh, some people find him, okay, and then all of a sudden they kind of like just randomly turn on him for no reason, okay. And in then the middle of the jungle, yeah. And then that involves some, some very strange other characters <laughs> being brought into the scene, which are kind of very pagan. And he kind of finds all of this stuff like spread around. I didn't know that until obviously I finished watching it, but yeah, it has a a Christian biblical theme something to do with this Saint Anthony in it but it's obviously it's all twisted and done in a kind of symbolic modernised okay. way and um, the main character is gay and the other characters that um, are involved in kind of like finding him, finding him and stuff are also gay so it's got this unusual mix of lesbian and gay characters kind of thrown into this religious kind of context is it like an allegory I don't know what they're trying to say it, and also it ended on this kind of tone and you didn't really understand what it was trying to say because it kind of is leading you to this crescendo and it kind of just goes kind of blunt it's kind of like a blunt stop and you're like well alright but it's like there's so many weird scenes in it that make you go, whoa, it's, this is cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, the orthonologist. And there's, and there's lots of, um, there's nudity in it, but it's nudity done in a very non-sexual way. It's kind of almost like naturist sort of nudity. Okay. So it's not, because uh, I know that a lot of nudity, again, in our today is instantly, oh, this is sexual but this has nudity into it. It just it just feels natural. Like oh, just they're just naked. <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. and sounds really interesting. Really, doesn't really bother you. Cool. Uh, Do you want to go next? Yep. Or I? Number nine, nine is um, War for the Planet of the Apes. Uh, my comments are: I really enjoyed the look and the feel of the film. I thought the score and the cinematography were great, but the real obvious standout, aside from the silverback gorillas riding horses was the visual effects and how the filmmakers were able to carve out and maintain for over two hours a powerful and poignant narrative with what is essentially computer-generated talking apes. And I think think it is actually a genuine feat of filmmaking and a worthy conclusion to a very strong sci-fi trilogy. I really enjoyed it. I watched it a couple of times and... uh, I'm still yet to watch it all the way through, but what I did see of it, I it did engage me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the CGI monkeys uh, just freed me off a little bit. Mm. But I have watched the previous 
uh, Planet of the Apes that, is it the same director that's made them I did watch them I did enjoy them mm. and I think I just I don't know what happened to me this time I think I just got a bit grumpy with it <laughs> it looks like it probably is the best out of the three I watched it and it happened in front of me <laughs> and then I just never thought about it ever again because oh. I just thought it was just really just whatever I don't really care mm-hmm. about it I just find it hard I thought it's quite boring and it's interesting to watch the technology advancing and it is amazing mm. but I just felt like as a narrative it was like very much like a bit of a retread of the previous two movies mm-hmm. they got caught and they had to escape mm-hmm. you know so I was like okay it's quite good that anyway has, has uh, we need to move on so I'm going to move on okay so uh, my number nine is a documentary called Bright Lights starring Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds uh, this documentary is about uh, Debbie Reynolds and her relationship with Carrie Fisher who passed away uh, or as Rupert Callender would say she died uh, <laughs> one year ago <clears throat> one year ago around now and this documentary we don't need to have a big chat about it it's, it's in my number nine purely because it was really touching really moving mm-hmm. you see her, Carrie Fisher's relationship with Debbie Reynolds it reminds you what a massive star Debbie Reynolds actually was mm-hmm. and what a challenge it was for Carrie Fisher to live in her shadow at one point mm-hmm. and then become the Star Wars girl and then you know and just their t- t- tense relationship how it evolved uh, into this kind of amazing de- codependent in a good way friendship they live together almost next to one another in two separate houses mm-hmm. they're both incredibly big characters and obviously the shadow of this sad event that she died is kind of l- looming over it and that Debbie Reynolds died like the day after or something something like that three days or very very time. closely afterwards as soon yeah. as her daughter died and so you just, I don't know, I, cr- I have to say it's like one of the only films on this list that made me cry. Mm-hmm. And in, I was just touched and moved by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just highly recommend you all watch Bright Lights, starring Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds, my number nine. Why is it called Bright Lights? Um, don't know, just a reference to Hollywood or something or other, yeah. Reference yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to Hollywood. So number eight. My number eight. So, okay, I'm going to throw in uh, Blade of the Immortal. Great. Um, Good. It's a martial arts movie. It's a straight-up martial arts movie. Oh, I love it. Um, I, it's just lots of fighting. It's based on a comic book, a graphic novel, which I actually used to read when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I've read a lot of the volumes. Mm-hmm. I have no idea that we're going to make a movie out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is actually in my top 15. This is number 12 in my chart um, so it's definitely high up for me too it's ultra violent it's super stylish it's about a guy that can't die so he's he's immortal yeah and he he ends up protecting this young girl and he's not even the greatest fighter but but he <laughs> he's, he's kind of just through pure brute sort of like he's force. lost all care he doesn't care like they'll <laughs> chop his arm off and he just keeps going and he he just always wins mm-hmm. because he's he, they, his arms grow back through these crazy worms that are in his body um, he's, he's had some sort of uh, spell put on him yeah he, he can't quite figure out if it's a blessing or a curse exactly that's the whole crux of the movie is it's a blessing and a curse 
And it's just, it's just a really, really enjoyable bloodbath, old school Japanese, you know, fighting movie. <laughs> it's just great, but it's done now, and it's high budget, and it looks yep. crisp, and it's it's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's refined piece of work. Okay, Gareth, what's your number eight, buddy? Number eight is Hounds of Love. Ooh. Which is an Australian psychological horror drama um, made by first-time director Ben Young, who also wrote it. And uh, it tells the story of, in suburban Perth during the mid-1980s, actually it's loosely based on a real-life uh, yeah. events. People are aware that women are being, disappearing at the hands of serial killers John and Evelyn White. After an innocent lapse in judgment, Vicky Maloney is randomly abducted by the disturbed couple. With her murder imminent, Vicky realises she must find a way to drive a wedge between Evelyn and John if she is to survive. This film is hardcore. Have you seen it? Yes. I, wa- yeah. I watched the trailer, I haven't had time to get around to watching it, but it yeah. looks very intense. At it first, is intense. I thought it was based on like a, something that might have actually happened. It is. Yeah. Oh, it is. There is some... What is interesting about the film, for me, is it is it's probably the darkest film on out of any of them on this list and there's some pretty dark films on here yeah I think the performances as well were extraordinary all yeah. three of the main performances yeah uh, very intense um, I should say it is uncomfortable but also potentially traumatising viewing yeah. for uh, women anyone yeah for... it's not it's not easy going if you're not if you're not in tune with like, I love horror movies but I like horror movies in general that are like a little bit out there or surreal or strange or weirdly funny mm. because of how gruesome they are or whatever you know like Raw which I'm sure we'll get to at some point in the list but this is actually disturbing yeah it's it's hard it's hard to watch but it's really worth it if you can get through it yeah. <laughs> I would like to talk about it at length but I don't think we have time he's a director um, well what else would you like to say have to say a bit more um, just um, the the character dynamics of the couple are really interesting in as much as how the husband manipulates or has manipulated the woman since the age of 13 and it's really dark how he uses her the absence of her children that she had in a different part of her life and the presence of the captives whose youth and beauty stoke her insecurities uh, into believing that raping and murdering women will bring them closer together. And <coughs> that, the way that's told and explored by his first-time director is, uh, I mean, a really good reason to watch what he does next. Uh, so my number eight is Prevenge, which is uh, it's listed as 2016, but again, it was released in UK cinemas this year so it's in my list Prevenge is uh, written and directed by Alice Lowe who also stars in the movie who was um, I think about six months pregnant when she actually made the film Uh, and it's about she plays a widow called Ruth who is seven months pregnant when believing herself to be guided by her unborn baby she embarks on a homicidal rampage dispatching anyone who stands in her way mm-hmm. I mean I just don't know if you can think of any other film where a pregnant woman has written and directed a movie where she plays a pregnant woman in the film mm-hmm. herself yeah. she's got a kind of almost prenatal depression thing going on well, that, or, or you think that 
and it sent her kind of crazy and she's on this murder rampage but then as the story unfolds it's got a classic structure to it she sort of as the thing unfolds she goes and murders various different people in gruesome more and more gruesome and messed up ways mm-hmm. but you start to realise that they've kind of wronged her mm-hmm. in the past and why they've wronged her and how they've wronged her and, and you get a real catharsis out of her getting her revenge on them mm-hmm. and it's just got lots of really good British actors in it I just completely admire her mm-hmm. I'm, an, I'm a fan I just think what she's done on the budget she's done it on she's made a really interesting gritty hilarious at times frightening at times mm-hmm. and like wincing juicingly kind of just this genre ride mm-hmm. and to do it seven, six months pregnant and to act in it mm-hmm. it's I'm just yeah she's actually pregnant in the movie yeah she's pregnant in <laughs> the film that is mental um, what a great thing to show your kid when it's born Number seven. So I chose another obscure, slightly surreal film. <laughs> it, I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Icarus. Okay. Icarus of Vision. Does that sound right? Okay. That yeah, that's Icarus of Vision. Icarus. Who is Icarus? Sounds like a ancient kind of god. Icarus flew too high to the sun. Yeah. Uh, burnt his wings. Yeah. Excellent. So it's a film about ayahuasca. There's a character who obviously has gone to the Amazon to take ayahuasca in a group with people to, who are searching to solve problems in their life, either health problems or just issues they've got. Okay. Um, but again, the reason why I was drawn to it is because of its surrealist imagery, unusual, lots of un- unusual scenes, because um, obviously it's about ayahuasca there's lots of trippy moments okay. but it's also it has a really engaging storyline really interesting characters in it uh, primarily most of it's set in the jungle um, I'd say there's, there's definitely referen- references to other films that have been filmed in that location like um, Brace the so, Serpent huh? yeah there's, there's similar theme to that but there's the German director who did the film about the boat oh um, uh, Herzog Herzog uh, yeah. with Kaskinski which is Rough the Rough Rough no, of God Akira the Rough of God yeah. there we go wonderful film mm-hmm. um, so what is the narrative is it like you follow one character through all these ceremonies yeah it's the main character who's gone there and um, she just ends up so there's two shamans one of them is like a kind of uh, a more higher up shaman that kind of knows what's going on and he's got another shaman who's teaching to guide these people through the different problems and it's yeah. kind of it's very visual and you, you instantly understand what's going on through the visuals okay so the shaman can kind of see the problems that these people have got and he kind of goes in and does this weird trippy <laughs> kind of thing to like their visions it's like he kind of gets inside their visions and kind of manipulates them in a way that's kind of healing them there's lots of kind of like psychedelic references to you know kind of like 
yeah. UFOs and aliens, but it's all done in like a really kind of subtle, just like blase kind of way, as if it's all kind of normal. Okay. So that is your number seven, and that is Icarus the Vision. Yeah. And I watched so- it on um, Vimeo, rented it off Vimeo, because that's, oh. that's the only way I could figure out where to see it. Mm-hmm. So Very that's, good. That's where you can see it. My number seven is Logan Lucky, um, the crime comedy drama directed by Steven Soderbergh. (laughs) Oh! Um, So, a brief synopsis. Do you want a brief synopsis? Yes, please! So, when Jimmy Logan gets fired, he convinces his brother Clyde and sister Melly to help him rob the Charlotte Motor Speedway during a NASCAR race. But they will need the help of Joe Bang, a convicted safecracker who is currently doing time. All they need to do is break Joe out, blow the racetrack vault, get away with the cash, return, return Joe to prison, and get Jimmy to his daughter's beauty pageant on time. What could possibly go wrong? Well, there is the Logan family curse. So I uh, really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really fun movie, and I have described it as thus. A very fun, humorous Confidently entirely told heist movie with a big southern heart. Wow. Um, again. You don't have to attack it. I'm not attacking it. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> I'm not attacking it. I'm just saying, what was that with Craig David's, Daniel Craig David's <laughs> accent in that film? I thought you made Craig David with Craig David. Yeah, well, that's his name, is Daniel Craig David. Because <laughs> yeah. it's just like. Wow's going now I'm going to do the thing in the thing and then I'm English and then I'm going to do the thing yeah. it was a bit like okay and then what's his name from Family Guy who I just think is not funny on any level but turns what, up what is this English bloke going alright mate what is Seth MacFarlane an idiot hole he's annoying <laughs> and what is he in this movie annoying annoying it's okay. so perfectly cast okay look it, it, it works Okay, it works, it works. It's not a terrible movie, but I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Fair what's enough. Your, what's I don't want to just attack Mr. your Puckett. ideas. I don't want to just attack you. If you liked it, I'm glad. I yeah. want to be generous. I'm yeah. happy that you enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, my number seven is... Oh, we're doing well. It's okay. We've got another hour. We're fine. Uh, <laughs> my number seven is Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond. Ooh. This is a Netflix documentary, uh, and it uh, details the behind-the-scenes adventures of Jim Carrey on the set of Man on the Moon. Uh, He throws himself so deeply into playing the character of Andy Kaufman uh, that he... he he just... he kind of starts to mirror Andy Kaufman's life behind the scenes of the movie. He starts to... he goes so deep into character that he never breaks character and he, he kind of torments other people that are on set he does crazy pranks he dresses up he acts very bizarrely and it's it's all told through the footage that was shot on set uh, by a group of filmmakers whose footage was then embargoed by uh, the studio who said they didn't want everybody to think that Jim Carrey was an asshole. and so this footage is sat somewhere I think in Jim Carrey's office for about a decade or, t- or so, I think in '95 the movie was made, so quite a long time. And now it's all been re-released and intercut with an interview with Kerry, uh, who is the, reflecting on 
his experience of making Man on the Moon. Uh-huh. And the documentary is kind of about Andy Kaufman, which who's a fascinating character. It's a great I film. That I really on. like Andy Kaufman, and it's also about Jim Carrey and about him as a as a, as a presence as an actor. It's about acting. It's about filmmaking. It's about ego. It's about um, <clears throat> strangely enough, it's about spirituality. It's it taps into this idea that Jim Carrey had to let go of almost being Jim Carrey in order to be happy. <laughs> um, and I think it's it's really unflinching. It doesn't try to pretend that he's great or, you know, it doesn't shy away from the fact that at times I think he was a bit of an arsehole on that set, you know. And, but it it's, for me, I mean, I don't know. I make films and I enjoy them and I think that have a proclivity towards films that talk about the filmmaking process and the creative process in that way you know because he's embracing Andy Kaufman's spirit yeah exactly it's like he's channeling Andy Kaufman um, being Kaufman Kaufman, (laughs) I don't know but um, anyway Jim and Andy the Great Beyond is my number seven I highly recommend it very good did he lose control of himself he does you should watch it it's really fascinating intriguing I love Jim Carrey he's great so tell us what's your number six number six so number six I uh, chose Loving Vincent uh, I went to go see it twice Ooh. at the Barn Cinema mm-hmm. so the first time round, I kind of was just taking in the visuals because it's it's uh, one of the first fully oil painted animated films flea oil painted yes painted by fleas Fully. What? Fully. Oh, sorry. <laughs> please, please. So it uses oh, that technique. Please. What's that technique they use in Waking Life? Rotoscoping. Rotoscoping. It's animated over the real, real filmed actors, yeah. 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 But the difference in this is that uh, it must have taken a long time. Because obviously it's about Vincent Van Gogh, so they've mm. uh, done it so that it's all animated with real oil paintings, which sounds a bit mental. Um, I mean, I saw, saw the trailer and it was incredible. Yeah. Haven't seen the film. But yeah, I chose it specifically mostly for that reason because it's because of its artistic reasons. Because um, it's, you know, it's about Vincent van Gogh and the whole film is painted, it is kind of animated in the style of his paintings. Cool. Um, and it was uh, a production between Poland and the UK. Um, the thing that's like odd about it as well is that uh, all the characters in it have got different accents from around the world and I guess you would probably more expect the people the characters to be speaking in the tongue of the region that it's set in mm-hmm. but um, it's still enjoyable <laughs> to watch because <laughs> Um, it gives that it gives it that international feel to it because mm-hmm. um, you've got accents from around the world and it makes it interesting. Cool. Um, so yeah, it's about the the end of Vincent Van Gogh's life and his death and the reasons behind why he may have killed himself. Okay. Um, Sounds wicked. And actually, I really want to see that. The character in it who is related to uh, Vincent van Gogh who has to well he decided to go and deliver this this undelivered letter um, 
that Vincent van Gogh um, uh, wrote. I think it was a letter from Vincent van Gogh, or maybe it was a letter from. It doesn't matter. So he, he's delivering his letter, and uh, through delivering this letter, he ends up kind of doing this detective thing about Vincent van Gogh and like why did he kill himself and did he kill himself and did someone else actually kill him? All these different reasons behind it. Gareth, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but Gareth looks a little bit like Vincent van Gogh right now. <laughs> Anything? Yeah, big, definitely. Big ginger beard. Yeah. Thank you. But uh, yeah, I find it. There's lots of things I learnt about Vincent Van Gogh I didn't know about through watching it, mm. and and it's, it's a visual treat at the same time. Yeah, by the sounds of it. It's very eye-opening and kind of uh, culture culturally educative. And oh, is you next, Gareth? Yes. Go for it. Watch your number. So six. my number six is Logan. Logan's it's a good it's a good, good movie well, it's probably one of the best X-Men movies that they've um, that they've made yep it's the 10th X-Men film it's the final Jackman huge Jackman huge action film. huge Jackson <laughs> it's the last Wolverine with Hugh Jackman who's played him for 17 years mm-hmm. he is Wolverine <laughs> yes although yeah so it's the second highest grossing R-rated movie of 2017 behind It. Ah, is that because it's very gross? But dum dum. Yeah, I I think nice it's the best grossing. modern superhero movie. Oh, did I say that? Superhero. Do you count? I mean, do you count Dark Knight trilogy, Nolan's Batman films, in that? Because to me, I think the Dark Knight is the best. Oh, come on. Let's not get into that. Does he have superpowers? Let's not get into <laughs> that crap. Okay. All right. It's, uh, I enjoyed it. I thought it was, uh, instead of being a meaningless and empty CGI spectacle, it's quite a sophisticated movie. Yeah. And with characters that you care about and a movie that has something relatively important to say. Mm-hmm. My number six is The Disaster Artist. Fascinating. Which is, I'm going to try and be quick is a film about the making of a film called The Room by Tommy Wiseau. The Room is one of the worst, best films ever made that gets watched like a cult movie by loads of people and people laugh at it and throw spoons at the screen. It's so bad, it's become almost like an event movie. There's Prince Charles in London play it like once a month. Prince Charles? Yeah, the Prince Charles cinema. Oh, no, Prince Prince Charles doesn't personally play it himself. (laughs) And... It, it Prince Charles personally puts it on in his front room and it's made by a guy called Tommy Wiseau he spent about six million pounds on it nobody knows where he got any of his money from he's this bizarre character no one knows how old he is loads of it's shot on green screen for absolutely no reason it is, it's almost indescribable it's almost Dave, David Lynch Lynch Lynchy-esque yeah it just crosses over that strange magical boundary but really really bad and it just becomes somehow hilariously good Mm. Um, and quite bizarre as well yeah (laughs) and this film is about the making of that and James Franco plays Tommy Wiseau in an incredibly committed performance like he just becomes him and it's all about this. It's about Hollywood. It's about these dreamers trying to make something. It's about them completely failing, but then ultimately succeeding because it's, it becomes this other thing. It's quite inspiring as well. Yeah, it doesn't. Because they like they actually go and do something and act in it and release it 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's just some hilarious lines in it. Nothing. All I will say is, I don't see many comedies these days that are trying to be comedies that I just go in and I actually laugh the whole way through. Mm-hmm. We've lost that. It's a tight. It's got actually. It's got. It is experimental in nature because it's so meta, but it is actually really well written script. Mm-hmm. It makes you laugh consistently the whole way through. I was. I laughed the whole way through it. And you definitely had to see the room. You had to see the room and understand I think you should watch the room first. Before going to see or it. at least you could watch the 10 minute best of the room YouTube <laughs> video, which I watched with a guy that came to see it with me uh, who hadn't seen the room. Who was the guy that you went to see it with? Uh, Ian Forbes. He's the cinematographer who shot my short ah, film, The Sermon. Right. Yeah. We went to watch it together in London. and I just, We just watched the 10 minute best of the room. So he got it. So you get in there, got it. He loved it. Um... You're getting a bit of a double whammy here because I've actually got the disaster artist as number five. So okay, we'll talk about it for a bit longer. No, no, that's fine. That's um, let's just move on. Uh, I just highly recommend it. Um, <laughs> so that's my number six. And it's my number five. And it's Johnny's number five, so we can move on. And I saw it in the cinema, and it was overwhelmingly good. Yes, on a big screen. G, my number five is Get Out. Yay! We just want to give a round of applause for this movie and how great it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a modern horror classic. Um, directed by first-time director and comedian Jordan Peele. Um, I love him as a comedian. Okay. He tickles me. Oh. But um, this comedy horror thriller is not so funny. It is funny at times, but it's a horror thriller. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um... It's funny and it's scary and it's thought-provoking. Mm. And uh, for Jordan Peele to combine those three elements so well uh, is extraordinary. And it's my number five. One thing uh, that I think is really good is uh, throughout the entire movie, the main- maintaining a sense of unease. Yes. Because there aren't like jump scares and stuff, but it's the sense of unease throughout the movie that is done so well. What's your number... Five. five. My number five, again released in UK cinemas, 2017, is L by Paul Verhoeven. I've seen that one. Yes. So L. What is it about? L is about a successful businesswoman who gets caught up in a game of cat and mouse as she tracks down the unknown man who raped her. <sighs> it's not an easy watch. It's slightly controversial. Yeah. I. Really, really loved Isabel Huppert's performance as the central character Elle. Um, I, for me, I enjoyed the fact that you had this woman who got raped at the beginning, who responds to that rape and that act of violence in the most unexpected ways possible, in ways that you would never, ever, I have never seen, I don't think has ever been depicted before in film, and that it was everything about it was challenging to your your personal sensibilities how you feel maybe a character should act in that situation but it but it created such an act, a well-rounded believable character in L and in is Isabel Huppert that you believe for me I believe that she as this eccentric strange character at the center of the story who had been through a lot of these um, things as a child that you learn about her father was a serial killer 
you that's not a spoiler I don't think it's creating a character it's making something happen to them and it's showing how she as a character would react and I believe her character and I believe she would have reacted that way mm-hmm. and people are strange and people do strange things mm-hmm. and yes there's an element of con- he's he, you know Paul Verhoeven he's a he likes to push buttons as a mm-hmm. filmmaker but for me she just grounds it in this humanity and I just believe in Isabel Huppert and I love her performance I just loved it mm-hmm. it's and it's bizarrely a, it's a very funny film um, it pokes fun at the bourgeoisie bourgeoisie um, and yeah I just found it very uh, very compelling and I just love Paul Verhoeven I'm a big fan of his filmmaking it's a great name um Gareth, any thoughts on L? Uh, I found it the the moral the I found it quite challenging in terms of the moral compass. I didn't know what to think. I did like it. Um, check it out. Yeah, it'll, it'll make you think in ways that you haven't thought before. Okie dokie. So that's my number five. Shawnee, what's your number four? What's your Sorry. number four, Shawnee? What? I am not a witch. As oh, we're getting we start to overlap here. Oh. <laughs> that's my number three. Oh, oh, and get out is my number four. Yeah, we're, oh. ha- we're having like some overlapping. Thing. That's good because it means we can keep get it moving a little bit quicker. Yeah. yeah. Um, I am not a witch. Yeah, it's a very unusual tale about kind of like people in Africa getting forced into witchcraft, but. It almost in a kind of performance way. May I read out the synopsis? Yeah, go for it. Uh, it following a banal incident in her local village, eight-year-old girl Shula is accused of witchcraft. After a short trial, she is found guilty, taken into state custody, and exiled to a witch camp in the middle of a desert. At the camp, she takes part in an initiation ceremony, where, shown, where she is shown the rules surrounding her new life as a witch. Like the other residents, Shula is tied to a ribbon which is attached to a coil that perches in a large tree. She is told that if she should ever cut the rib- ribbon, she'll be cursed and transformed into a goat. <laughs> but the central thing is about this male figure who has found her and is using these witches, taking them around to different events in Zambia, I think. They use and they use them as like a dete- they use it in detective kind of investigation. Yeah. To, to, yeah, she uses various different ways, like to to debate, uh, to say who's committed a crime. Yeah, they use they use her to kind of say who it is that's committed a crime through like, yeah superstition, witchcraft rituals. Yes, yeah. and they and obviously the people, these local people, where they where they're doing this, they take it really seriously. They take the witchcraft and the witches very seriously. Yeah, yeah. So, and and it's really it's beautifully well shot. It's again very funny, even though what you're seeing is kind of twisted. There's a there's a lightness to it, isn't yeah, there? Like they're not like chained yeah. to anything. They're, they're these ribbons, so all the the prisons are in their minds, and it's it's told in that kind of slightly off kilter, almost comedic way. When you're seeing how people in Africa are interacting with each other, I've spent some time in Africa filming, and over the last few years, and. It's the first film I've seen that really captures the certain kind of the way in which uh, African people are are culturally around one another. Um, but it's beautiful. 
Loved it. Loved, loved, loved it. It's my number three. Mm. And uh, my number four. Are we, where are we doing? Wait up, son. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. It's because we're on the we're on the Iron Roll, which you know. My number four is Tower. Ooh, I watched this on yeah. your recommendation. Yeah. Is this the other? Is this a, the rotoscoped? It is a rotoscope animation documentary. Uh, it's about the August first, nineteen sixty-six shooting at the University of Texas when a young man climbed the looming tower on the campus and spent 96 minutes shooting students and campus staff. And the film combines archival footage and rotoscopic animation and is based entirely on first-person testimonies from witnesses and survivors in a seamless and suspenseful retelling of the unfolding tragedy. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really immersive. Um, because of the techniques that they used um, lots of police chatter um, I like rotoscoped uh, animation so as we mentioned before it's in Wake and Life mm-hmm. uh, it's used in Sin City Who Framed Roger Rabbit and I think I guess most people have seen it in the Take kind of, On Me it's kind of dark. music video by AHA that's mm. where it's like yeah, the really, 80s yeah from yeah. the 80s yeah Take and Disney movies me. actually use it in some occasions. Take Take it's uh, I saw it. Yeah. I thought it was very good. Oh, yeah. I've not watched it. Check it, it was out. genuinely quite tense. Yeah. It reminded me of an old Peter Bogdanovich movie called Targets. It's the first film he made. Yeah, it's uh, about. That. Have you seen it? No. You've seen Targets. I, I read about this movie and that movie Targets is about this the real life story of this yeah Targets is brilliant uh, as a I mean it's quite, it'd be a good double bill mm. uh, you should watch Targets I'll give it to you right. uh, I'll give you I'll lend you the DVD yeah. uh, <laughs> I <laughs> what number am I on sorry you still talking about Targets we are number yeah, four just want to say sorry one more thing apologies in America where I live now, yes, people like to shoot each other. Mm, they love it. They love it so much. It's the history of America, isn't it? Yeah, it's they the don't really freedom. want to do anything to stop it. If anything, um, it's encouraged. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- this shooting that occurred in 1966, uh, as shocking as it is, um, it's the eighth worst mass shooting in America. Um, wow. But, you know, it's really easy to get guns. Uh, it's really easy to get those guns and shoot people. Mm-hmm. And, you can buy and bullets in a Walmart, can't you? Yeah. Yeah. There's a huge problem with uh, Americans and violence. I don't know if anyone's noticed. <laughs> I think my top four I kind of almost love equally but had to just choose you know what I mean that's cheating well no I'm, not, I'm just saying I'm just I've chosen mm-hmm. but I'm just saying kind of love them all equally in different ways okay uh, but right. yeah my number four is Get Out so let's go to Shawnee's number three so for my number three I have chosen The Lure 
which is about uh, man-eating mermaids. See, I'm, I'm really gutted about this because this film was actually released initially in 2015 uh-huh. and that's being re-released, I think, in UK and US cinemas this year. Yep. But it seems to have had a re-release in the West and it was totally off my radar until about a week ago. I watched the trailer and I was like, this looks amazing, but I just haven't had time to watch it, unfortunately. Well, I got around to it for you. Way! Yeah, well, obviously from the trailer, um, I just had to watch it. Um, what happens in it, Shawnee? <laughs> it just... I, I instantly fell in love with it from the outset, from its opening. It has mermaids singing. It's a Polish movie, so it's... Uh, everything's spoken in Polish. And it's engaging folklore, mythical tales of the mermaids. And I guess a crossover with sirens, because the sirens are the ones that are supposed to lure... Uh, sailors and fishermen and people into the sea and they kill them okay um, but it's set uh, in 80s Poland Poland Ooh. 80s Poland, Poland. yeah <laughs> Dipsy and Poe um, uh, so these mermaids they come out of the water and they go and check out the human world and all this and blah 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 Okay. And for some reason, the people that they first meet seem to work in a kind of, let's say, blue-orientated sort of entertainment venue. Porn. Yeah, like a kind porn of, club. Like a strip, strip kind of club. That <coughs> like a, kind a fetish of, club. No, not, not in that sense. It's more of a, an entertainment place to have music and stuff, but they also do... <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, adult entertainment. Okay. So they get pulled into that world... Okay. Because they're both because they're sort of freaks in a freaks kind of way. Yeah, a little bit, but they're both very attractive, you know, young women. But they're mermaids. Okay. <laughs> bodily, bodily, uh, bodily, they cannot engage in the same things that the humans can. Mm. And one of the mermaids ends up falling in love with the humans. Blah blah blah. And there's this whole like mythical thing going on that she can't do that. And people start dying or. Yes, so there's lots of... So because these mermaids, they like to eat human flesh. And they whilst okay. they're... We're amongst the human people are basically trying to behave themselves so that they kind of don't get into trouble. Um, but they end up falling to their desire and there's lots of sharp teeth stuff going on. Oh, okay, lots just of, don't, don't spoil it. Okay, yeah, I want to see this film so badly. And the other thing that surprised me as well which I didn't know about and it's written up about it in its description is that it's also weirdly a musical so there's these moments where it breaks out into musical and you what is going on so there's lots of crossovers of different genres going on and it's very um, it's very refined spectacular funky modern folklore mythical horror comedy tale of killer mermaids Killer mermaids and lots of sexual frustrations and strange things going on in it. Absolutely brill. Great script, great storyline, great acting, (laughs) good music, (laughs) completely bizarre. Yeah. Everything about it is just fabulous and great. The Lore Killer Mermaids movie. Gareth? My number three is the French-Belgian horror drama Raw. 
Uh, Oof! This is a biggie. I'm going to deliver a synopsis. Yeah. And then, uh, so everyone in Justine's family is a vet and a vegetarian. At 16, she's a brilliant student starting out at a veterinary school where she experiences a decadent, merciless and dangerously seductive world. Desperate to fit in, she strays from her family principles, eats raw meat for the first time. Justin will soon face the terrible and unexpected consequences as her true self begins to emerge. What a treat. Well, I would just say, start by saying that this is my number one film of 2017. Had to fight it out quite hard with my number two. <laughs> it is... How do you how do you start? So, I don't think it's a plot spoiler to say that the the girl is a cannibal or becomes a cannibal. Is it? Is it no, a plot it's spoiler? It's in the trailer. It's in the trailer. She yeah. eats meat. It's called Raw. I think we can talk it's in about the poster, that. Kind of. It's in the poster. It's a cannibal horror movie, but it's done. The, the central uh, the central story in it was it's about two sisters and their relationship, right? Yeah. So, um, cinematically. It's just a visual treat. It's pretty sexy. That's the other sim- the lure, the two moments there was a sister's tea. Okay. Yeah, another similarity there. Interesting. So Gareth, I feel like I hijacked your uh, your number three. So you carry on, what do you think about it? <laughs> well I thought it was pretty sexy. Yeah. I thought it was very um, visually just dazzling. Um, mm. Music. Music. Cinematography. Pounding. Um, it, can I interject and just say it reminded me at times of Dario Argento's work mm-hmm. this kind of dizzying camera work good lighting with amazing pumping kind of electro music mm-hmm. which the French do really well they've got that kind of daft punk <laughs> yeah yeah. it's that kind of daft there's a daft punky almost a kind of reminded me a little bit of Gaspar Noe's Irreversible but with much less of a dark heart like a more of a more of a kind of there was there's a macabre fun to the movie what like what, some of the things you've seen are gross but, but there's a humour in it it's mm. the first it's the only movie out of any of these and I watch a lot of horror stuff it's the only horror film I've seen in a long time that actually slightly turned my stomach at one yeah. point yeah. There's, there's, a, there's a no scenes, spoilers yeah. but there's a moment where she eats a certain thing yeah it's, just, yeah. Yeah. it's very and gritty it literally made me like oh made me feel Stomach funny chain. you know mm-hmm. But the, the performances are wonderful. The two sisters are amazing in it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, great acting. And it was it almost reminded me a little bit like Lahaine as well. Maybe just because it's French, but like yeah, yeah. when a French movie just does that kind of pumping, awesome... It makes me think of that Justice music video where yeah. there's that street gang mm-hmm. going around just smashing stuff up. Yeah, and I love that. It links the French music scene as well because mm-hmm. Justice. So. Yeah. French. Don't you know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I would say it also speaks to um, films a bit like Carrie, where you've got kind of like a young girl who sort of finds out that she's got this almost supernatural power. Mm-hmm. Um, films like that, there's a there's definitely um, themes of Carrie that links young to... female sexuality, like blood and and a kind of the fear of female sexuality in a way that's running through it, like. Be like the male fear of a woman that might consume you or eat you or like kill you, mm-hmm. um, and that all that also the kind of sibling rivalry. That's what's so great about genre when you've got like 
sibling rivalry as expressed through metaphor via cannibalism mm-hmm. in a veterinary school. Also, the setting, we should talk about that, the setting of the veterinary school. You have these incredible scenes that I presume are just being filmed, you know, as they do happen in real life, like where horses are being transported from one part of a thing by like this this strange arm thing and it puts them into this kind of sterile room and you see them as as, as students, veterinary students, doing things with animals. Mm-hmm. Um so just the whole kind of backdrop of the movie has this kind of almost like um kind of sterile grungy kind of like gross sort of animal blood and tissue and hair kind of kind of creeping you out uh, the whole way through watching it and the unease again there's a seriously amazing sense of unease throughout the whole film again anchored with this incredible human drama about these two sisters and how their relationship evolves I loved it so much uh, cool well we are at number two your number two. <clears throat> okay. Your number two. My number two, I chose Lady Macbeth, which surprised me how good it was. Mm. Just from the trailer, I thought it looked quite visually stunning, and I felt I should give it a go. It's a period kind of drama, because it's set in uh, rural, rural England uh, in 1865, so it's set in a big old mansion of lords and ladies and all that kind of nonsense. It's not usually a sort of film I'm into because it just looks like uh, like a costume drama. Or yeah, a costume drama, romance with the the old kind of mm-hmm. you know oh they've been having a secret romance behind um, a marriage, loveless yeah um, marriage <laughs> yeah um, which basically is what happens in it. But it's the way it's filmed. Uh, the acting Florence Pugh is the lead actress yes and she's she's pretty um, what's the word magnet what's the word magnetising magnetising or all of the acting is very good magnetic Um, but it's just the way the way that it's filmed and the story the way the story is told through very distinct cinematic kind of scenes yeah and the way that the the kind of the camera and the scenes is used to evoke uh, kind of like feelings and intentions of what is going on. Well, it's about her rebelliousness, isn't it? Yes. She's in a stuffy, the key thing is she's in this stuffy environment. Yeah. And she completely rebels against everything. Yeah. So in a way, it's a very modern film. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like what you're saying is, yeah, on the outside you think, oh, it's another like well, it's... loveless marriage mm-hmm. affair movie. But actually because she... She's almost like a modern female character that is rebelling against all of that stuff yeah. within it. Because it's set in a very intense uh, misogynistic environment mm. where she is basically treated like an object and told constantly what to do, what mm. not to do. Mm. And at first she is abiding by these rules and she kind of becomes very um, drained and kind of weak because of that. Um, but then a, a character is introduced who's one of the workers um, Cosmo Jarvis yeah Cosmo Jarvis he's a Totnesian yes I was quite surprised because I was watching it and I recognised this he's guy he's from Totnes 
Have it's... you seen Lady Macbeth, Gareth? <clears throat> okay, no problem. Yeah, well, it's I thought it is, and it's a UK film, and yeah. I love I love it when a U, when a UK film is very good. <laughs> yes, can I give a bit of background? It was it was it was funded by Creative England and the BFI, and it was made on the iShort scheme, which is where you get given three hundred and fifty grand to make your first feature. Mm. I think they got some additional funding, but they made it on a very low budget. William Old and it is an incredibly impressive piece of work. Mm-hmm. 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 I also loved it because there was a fellow Tunisian in it. Yeah. Well, I didn't realise whilst I was watching it I didn't realise it was actually him kind of recognised him I was like, is it actually him, with him? Uh, no he just he was in he used to perform a lot uh, locally in the Bauhaus and things he did lots of comedy kind of singer songwriter stuff and he made lots of very uh, wacky music videos that went along to these kind of songs he made so that's obviously where he started off his kind of acting sorry I'm just drinking Cosmo uh, Jarvis uh, who's also very uh, impressive acting in the film you couldn't quite figure out who's the good guy and the bad guy. So yeah. I think that's quite a strong message. To She's it. complex, isn't she? Yeah, well, they, yeah, you couldn't figure out because obviously all the characters are kind of doing really kind of bad things, bad intention things. And there's just, there's no good and bad in it because the good and bad is just in pretty much every character in the film. Mm. Um, but I think it's very master, masterfully done. Um, yeah. William William Oldroyd have no idea who he is but he's the director first time filmmaker mm-hmm. someone someone I don't know what review it was I read in it but someone quite uh, compared it to Kubrick esque kind of style <clears throat> which I can see but might yeah. be overrated a bit yeah I think that might be overrating it a little bit I mean I think it's a really smart movie that does a lot with a tiny budget um, UK and it's UK and I'm really glad that you put it in UK massive Um, I've just I just try to like put aside any thing like that you know um, any loyalties in that way and just be completely honest about what moves me like I I think for me when I'm compiling the top 10 it's like did this move me do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. because Lady Macbeth could could conceivably be called a better film than The Killing of a Sacred Deer or Prevenge or Bright Lights but those other films moved me more and you can never explain why it can sometimes it can just be the mood you're in can't it when you mm. go into the cinema like uh, you know my second favourite movie of 2017 is Blade Runner 2049 she we're going to have to strap in for this aren't we I, strap in I really enjoyed it I uh, was looking forward to it because I really liked Denis Villeneuve the director I liked um, Sicario loved Sicario Sicario's it was really good, uh, amazing I really liked Prisoners and Incendies I liked I liked Arrival I'm Although not a big fan of Arrival it challenged me more than these other films it's harder to get your head around but so I was really looking forward to this movie I really like the original Blade Runner, mm-hmm. although I recognise it does have problems, it's a little bit boring. But uh, I don't think so. Personally, I don't get that with the original Blade Runner. I, I just drink it up and I just absolutely love it. I mm-hmm. don't find it boring. Okay, I, I understand that's a criticism, but I just don't get it. Anyway, come on, come continue, continue. Uh, what is, shall I give a synopsis or shall I just uh, say what I want <coughs> just say what you want mate I think people know what it is yeah um, well I mean okay so it looks gorgeous 
the production design is uh, gorgeous. It yeah. looks great. Mm, yeah, it uh, does. It does. Uh, cinematography, Roger Deakins. I really liked uh, lead role, like E.T. Right, Gosling. Yeah, I thought, I thought he's good, good, uh, good uh, actor to have in there as a lead. Yeah. <clears throat> he is, I've, but I'm a fan of Gosling. I'm, I'm, I feel like he gets knocked. He's yeah. one of these actors that people don't like, and I don't understand why they don't like him. He's not good. People him. just don't like him. But oh. like, for me, I'm like, he's a good lead actor. I feel the same way about Tom Hardy. People don't like. I like Tom Hardy. He's, I like both of them. Yeah, me too. Same here, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. So Hans Zimmer, he's got the keys to my bit <laughs> Uh, his score, score thrumming it is when I watched it we watched it together didn't we Shawnee in the Exeter Picture House yeah. the centre of the screen no shit was vibrating <laughs> it was going <laughs> it was actually the image in the centre of the, the cinema screen was distorted because there was so much bass yeah. <laughs> it was actually it, it was mental how much bass there was and I have to say I found Hans Zimmer's scores of late a little bit generic they're getting a bit generic I think yeah. he's got a bit of an industrial um, score making machine going on where it's, yeah. everything's like <laughs> like every trailer now is like yeah. but then also other people are doing that as well yeah so it's all just become a whole big, <laughs> like a big robot sheep uh, I like. however sorry to finish my point it was really unique the score for this one it felt unique yeah, it had some nice touches. I used some um, older music. There's some Frank Sinatra, some Elvis. Mm. Um, well, I mean, I thought that it plays off the original's themes, plots and characters without negating or ruining them, which is pretty rare for a reboot or sequel or remix or whatever they're doing these days. See Alien Covenant. And... Uh, <laughs> I was buzzing when I came out. I was okay. like high on the yeah. movie. I genuinely had a really s- cinematic hit the G spot. <laughs> yeah, G spot. It slammed my G spot. It hit uh, G's G spot. Yeah. Okay. Um, I found it quite moving, just in the sense that Blade Runner has always been. I've watched it a lot of times when I was younger, growing up. I've always liked always kind of immersed myself in its world quite a lot growing mm. up just because uh, it's just a very amazing stunning movie yes and getting to see a sequel that's based on that it's just and it's such a long period of time between the two films as well mm. getting to see something out of space in that world yeah <clears throat> it was slightly moving to be able to you yeah. know, re-enter that world I would have preferred to have seen Different things, uh, but I thought I, I thought the whole film was great. I just I just didn't like Harrison Ford. I, I think it just would have been better if they just had it as Ryan Gosling, no Harrison Ford. Yeah, it, well, just like just him in there, short, just a little bit of him. But it just, well, well um, can I just come back, call back it. to the, the discussion we had about the Last Jedi uh-huh. and the Force Awakens earlier. I think the way they've brought back Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi, regardless of what happens in his storyline, which is debatable, mm-hmm. just the way he looks and seems and feels is he looks and feels old and kind of grizzled and like beaten and, and cynical about the world. And 
that for me works really well when you see Harrison Ford in Blade Runner 49 and I know that he may be a robot or he might not be a robot whatever I don't care you can do what you want so he could be a robot that looks old and dishevelled it's got a weird tick or it's like slightly malfunctioning or whatever (laughs) but he needed to have something to him and he does turn up and he looks like he's not gone into costume He's got his grey t-shirt on that he just turned up on set in. Mm-hmm. He's kind of hanging out in some like lounge area that's supposedly surrounded by cos- dust, like toxic dust, and he's completely normal. And supposedly he's been sitting there on his own for years with no company, and he's just talking like Harrison Ford's turned up. And it took me completely out of the film. Uh-huh. And the way it was... Yeah. I... What do we think about... That? This is a touchy subject, but I think we need to talk about it. it we're three blokes sitting in a room discussing something. But I'm a gentleman. Well, you're gentleman. a gentleman. But the misogyny aspect of it... Which, the, the allegations... Yeah, the critique of it that's come from certain people, females and otherwise, and, and men, you know, or whatever, like saying, okay, this film's misogynistic. Um, and I'm just going to put my opinion across I'm going to say it with the utmost understanding that I'm a man and I see the world from that point of view however my perspective and my feeling about Blade Runner was that it was it was um, it was uh, expressing a misogyny that exists in our culture already Mm -hmm. in a dystopian future and it was expressing it in a way which was completely depressing it wasn't saying this is great you know you've got a holographic girlfriend character that was ultimately the reason why he falls for the tale in the middle of the story you know so it's a bit of a spoiler but should we just cut that bit no, no it's, good, it's a good topic to bring up because I mean uh, that when the, uh, the, the hologram character comes on like immediately it is misogynistic and it, it it did make me it made me feel uncomfortable watching it because it was very clearly like that old was it step, like a, step of wives yes like what they, people... it's like a male fantasy isn't it like yeah. having this holographic wife that's sexy and looks after and just, you and tells you what you want to hear yeah yeah which is the key point of this movie it tells him what he wants to hear mm-hmm. and it ends up being very cleverly about male ego rather than being misogynistic and saying this thing's great we all need to have one of these it actually ends up being the thing that fools him his own male ego despite being a robot is the thing that like ends up kind of but I think I think that character is what sparks it it's like the holographic housewife character I think that's what sparks the argument but the majority of the female characters in the movie uh, are completely equal to the male characters like there is no misogyny uh, in the other female characters the only distinctly misogynistic character is the holographic housewife who is a hologram and he's also not human he's a replicant mm-hmm. so they're both pretty much devoid of actually being human anyway mm-hmm. I think so people would both... argue that the prostitute characters are misogynistic because they're attractive prostitutes mm-hmm. and they're there and they kind of come and they he asks them about the plot and they kind of tell him you know about stuff but I, I, I just don't I don't think that I think it's as we've demonstrated just by talking about it it's mm-hmm. much more complex than that I think something like Fast and the Furious 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, and 2, and 1, is immensely more misogynistic than Blade Runner 2049. 
in Fast and the Furious movies, you literally have girls rubbing their asses against sports cars the whole way through the movie, right? And yeah. but somehow, Brave Runner two forty nine has become this like focus of this kind of criticism, and I don't really see it. It's clearly it's clearly mm-hmm. a, a, an amplification of the misogynistic culture we live in, and all the complexities that exist within it. And it, the key point is, it's a depressing world. It's not yeah. like a great place where all this stuff would be brilliant. Well, it's, it's dystopian. It's a dystopian yeah. setting. It's negative. <clears throat> it is cast in all this stuff is in the film. The, the the prostitution, the holographic girlfriends, all that stuff is cast in a negative light. Mm. Some comments. Yes. Well, I mean, I was pretty surprised by the response by. Uh, liberal bloggers the liberal bloggosphere mm-hmm. um, in terms of like if you're going to pick your battle I wouldn't have picked the Blade Runner 2049 because mm-hmm. I think it's a movie about patriarchy and it's a movie about environmental destruction from the outset it says 2020 ecosystems are collapsing and um, I'll quote a woman called Rachel Keynes of movie pilot who says the gender politics in Blade Runner 2049 are intentional the movie is about secondary citizens replicants orphans women slaves just by depicting these secondary citizens in subjugation doesn't mean that it's supportive supportive of these depictions they are a condemnation and even uh, Denis Villeneuve himself who's made nine movies six of those have featured female protagonists says Blade Runner is not about tomorrow it is about today and I'm sorry but the world is not kind on women and my reading of the movie is that it is a condemnation of patriarchy of misogyny and like I said earlier the film is out there now and people will digest it through home media and they'll see it and the conversation will continue Hmm. but I think these this initial response um, by liberal bloggers. I mean, it'd be interesting to talk to Hannah and have a conversation about it. Yeah. Also, I'm not trying to put words in her mouth. I don't actually know how she feels, but I yeah. just... There's the other character. There's the, the, the police policewoman who's very politically powerful in the film. Mm. Why, why has she forgotten about as well in this whole misogyny-feminist debate? Mm. Because... She's yeah. to me. She's just a person that uh-huh. is in the film. Like, I don't see her as female or male. She just yeah. is a yeah a character. Well, I've only seen the movie once, and yeah. I've read some articles online. But uh, I mean, what I remember very clearly at the end is that the character of K, Ryan Gosling's character, he is not the chosen one, as uh-huh. we were led to believe throughout the movie. The chosen one, the is um, no spoilers. Uh, is not K. No. And not a male. Is not a male. Okay, so where have we got to? So I just said my number two. Yeah. Yeah, which is 
Blade Runner 2049. Uh, so, is it my turn to send my number two? Yeah. My number two is the wonderful, amazing film by the Safdie brothers, Ben Safdie and Josh Safdie, and it's called Good Time. Mm. Uh, after a heist goes awry, a bank robber spends a night trying to free his mentally ill brother from being sent to Rikers Island Prison. So, uh, how do I describe this movie? It's kind of... It follows this uh, central character who is played by Robert Patterson. He is... It's Robert Patterson's, uh, like, best role by far. I mean, obviously, I saw him in the first Twilight movie. I didn't watch any of the other movies. And, you know, I didn't... You know, I've seen it. I saw him last year. He really impressed me in Childhood of a Leader, which I thought was, like... Well, it's one of my favourite films of the year, which we talked about on this podcast. And now he's come out, like, a year later, and he's in, arguably... To be honest, I like Good Time just as much as Raw, but I just had to pick... I picked Raw because I just... I love the... You know, I think it just pipped it for me, but barely. Um, they're like oranges and apples, really. Um, but Good Time... It just... It's shot in this, like, immediate, close, handheld, 16 millimeter film sprawling kind of um, really engaging uh, way and and you just see him make mistake after mistake and his life and and everything he does just kind of like swirls down into this grungy pit of 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 like dark mistakes and and comedy and it 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 just never ending yeah it just it, it, it gets surreal and funny and trippy and it and it and it it feels like a thriller, but you're watching a kind of social yeah. realist drama that is shot and feels like you're watching a thriller. It grabs you and it just doesn't let you go to the very very end. <laughs> I was captivated immediately, and I was so captivated by the first twenty minutes, which I thought was electrifying, that I was worried that that was it had peaked. Yeah. But it just gets weirder and more maddening. Uh-huh. And more disturbing. Yeah, good time. Go and see it. It's one of the best films of the year, by far. I loved it. And I, I just want to say a quick thing. I went back and I watched uh, their previous film. It's a film called Heaven Knows What. And it is less gripping, but it's also shot in a very similar handheld, kind of grainy style on the streets of New York. And it follows a group of heroin addicts as they kind of overcome the small uh, the small kind of um, how would you say the tiny uh, hurdles that exist just getting through real life when you're a heroin addict like getting from hit to hit and mm-hmm. all the in, like kind of crazy turbulent missions that you have to do just to kind of basically get your next hit and feed your addiction and it's got a real kind of I don't know, there's a real slog to it, but it's it makes this incredible drama out of all these small things. And you you follow these two characters. Again, they're not very likeable. It's not as successful as making... It's not as enjoyable, so it's not as as successful as um, uh, making them anti-heroes. Like, they are just kind of like not great people. But you, you have compassion for them, but it's way more depressing Good Time manages to somehow be depressing but also incredibly entertaining mm. which is an incredible feat and 
you know, I think it's a wonderful film. And they're great filmmakers, and you should go and watch all of their other movies. Mm. I've got their their first film, which is called Daddy Longlegs, which I haven't had time to watch yet. <laughs> Daddy Longlegs. But it's about their father, and they're going to film about their dad and how their dad is with them. Uh, I'm going to watch that soon. Okay. Shawnee, what's your number one? Okay, so number one I chose is a film called The Leveling, which is another UK film. I like I like UK films. Is it about the levelers? It is not about the levelers, no. It's, I watched a trailer for it and I thought it looked interesting. Uh, I wasn't compelled to watch it immediately, uh, but I saw a commode, what's it called, Mark Commode review yeah. of it and it enticed me to give it a go. So I gave it a go and it surprised me quite overwhelmingly. Um, <clears throat> so it's set in uh, UK countryside, Somerset, uh, on a farm. Um, the storyline kind of on the surface is seemingly quite boring because it's just set on a farm but through the visuals um, it engages you immediately and there's a very distinct kind of spiritual undertone I'd say throughout the movie because it's about death and it's about uh, current Stress of stresses of farming um, in the English countryside and the effects that has on the farmers. Um, so there's kind of like current political themes running through it as well uh, concerning kind of badgers and cows. So there's lots of things in it that kind of surprised me that I wasn't expecting there to be in there. And specifically, there's lots of filmic imagery that I wasn't expecting to see in that kind of drama kind of um, storyline situation. Can you hint at what that is? So there's lots of kind of slow motion nature scenes, but they're done in a very dark uh, way, dark and symbolic way that's almost a bit kind of stepping into a kind of ancient kind of primordial... Folklore? Yeah, there's definitely distinct kind of very subtle folklore symbolism going on in there well as I said like in the way that the camera is working with like the environment there's a there's a spiritual undertone because there's the whole storyline is about the death of a <coughs> character in the film so there's lots it centres around that and all the acting is superb and it emotionally engages you immediately Mm. Uh, we'll it was directed by a female director called Hope Dickinson Leach um, and she again I think the levelling was made on the by Creative England and the BFI on the iFeature scheme so it was made for 350 grand same as Lady Macbeth same as Lady Macbeth and you've put two of them in your top ten which yep. is pretty cool I think they're both pretty stunning. I haven't seen the levelling. It's on the list. I just haven't had time or got around to it. Also, wanted to see it in the cinema, but living down here in the southwest, it's a bit <laughs> tricky to um, to catch them. Mm. Uh, so it is, it is basically just it is, it's just a drama, but it's just done in a very stunning way. And I thought it was a very outstanding piece of work. Did you mention that the backdrop is it is it's uh, it was isn't it the flooding of the Somerset Plains? Uh, yeah, the, the the farm gets flooded. Yeah, well, lots yeah. lots of very negative things happen to the family, which leads to even more negative things, and it's very compelling. 
<laughs> okay, the lovely. Good choice, surely. Mm-hmm. Exquisite. And my number f- one film of the year. Is it you now? Sorry. I've, no, I've done my thing. What's your number one? Good time. Good time. So your good, number one's Good Time. And my number one is Raw. Yeah. So, and we've talked about those. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks very much for listening to our really long rambling podcast about our favourite films of 2017. Hope you get to watch some of them. And you could uh, you can subscribe to Radio Thing on iTunes. And you can listen to on SoundCloud. And you can find us on Facebook. Goodbye from me. Bye. I'm sweating really hard. <laughs> I'm sweating movies. <laughs> so many movies. I've watched lots of films for your sakes. Goodbye. Not mine. <laughs> Bye. I hate you all. <laughs>